Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast of the Sunday morning sermons of the Bullard Church of Christ in Bullard, Texas. We hope you'll be blessed, challenged, and encouraged by today's lesson. It's wonderful to be here together this morning. We're so thankful to God for the blessing to gather, to encourage each other, to worship Him together and study His Word. Thank you for being here this morning. For our members, we've had some who have been sick and not with us for a while. We're so glad that you are back with us this morning. Some are watching online, and we're so glad to have those of you who are visiting with us. We appreciate your presence so much. Feel free to ask us anything. We invite you to be a part of anything that we do, and we uh, hope that you will continue to come and visit. And we most hope, mostly hope that you would make the Bullard congregation your home congregation and let us know if we can serve you in any way. Well, we finished the Gospel of Mark today. We have gone through several weeks and looking at uh, the idea of following the Son of God. We've been following Him through Mark's writings to learn from what He did and what He said, to learn that He is the Son of God as Mark begins His Gospel and all of the implications of that. And today we finish up by looking at the idea of salvation in the Son of God as we look at His arrest and crucifixion and, of course, His resurrection as well. Now, let's back up a little bit to chapter 14. We'll be in 15 and 16, but look at what has happened. Remind yourself of what has happened in chapter 14. Verses 32 through 50, right after Jesus met with His disciples in that upper room for the Passover meal, and He instituted the Lord's Supper, which Brother Shaver did such a wonderful job uh, leading us through this morning in communion and looking at the Scriptures. Jesus took His disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane so He could pray. He knew the time was coming. He knew what was about to happen. And if you remember that uh, uh, John's account told us that when Jesus pointed out that Judas would be the one to betray Him, Judas got up and left. And so we don't see Judas yet, but he's going to show up again, isn't he? In fact, he's going to show back up real soon. But Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and Mark 14.34 tells us that Jesus became greatly distressed and troubled. He knows what's about to happen. He knows the time has come. He was looking forward to uh, celebrating the Passover meal with His disciples. John's account leads us through a few chapters of additional things that Jesus talked to His disciples about in that upper room. And now the time has come for His crucifixion. Everyone knew what crucifixions were. Everyone knew what how horrible they were. They were torture. They were the most horrible thing you could imagine. It was the worst thing you could go through. And Jesus certainly knew what He was facing. People had seen people hanging on the cross. They saw this, and this was, this was the Passover feast, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. There were thousands of people in Jerusalem. There was a giant crowd that was going to see anything like this happening. And Jesus falls on the ground, we see in verse 36 of Mark 14. And this is what He prayed intensely, Abba, Father... All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. 
Can you feel, try to feel what he's feeling? He's, he's saying, God, all things are possible. He's saying, God, please make another way. Does it have to be the cross? Does it have to be this way? Please, can there be another way? Jesus understood what he was facing. And he, he begged, does it have to be the way of the terrible cross? See, we'll never fully understand why some prayers are answered the way we ask them to be answered and why some are not. We won't always just comprehend that. But we know that even though God didn't answer Jesus' prayer the way He wanted it answered, and He says, God, you can do this. And we pray that we, we say, God, here's a way you could work that out for me. Here's how this could work out. And we don't understand why it doesn't work out the way it seems to be a good idea for us. But even though God didn't remove the cross from Jesus, Jesus uh, God still heard Jesus' prayer. He still cared for Him. He still had compassion for Him. In fact, in Luke's account, Luke 22, 43 and 44, we see that God sent an angel from heaven strengthening Jesus. And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly and sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And then we're so thankful that Jesus said these wonderful words in Mark 14, 36. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, Jesus understands our struggles. He knows what you're dealing with, what you dealt with. He knows what you're praying about, what you're hoping will work out in a certain way. He gets it. He totally understands. He completely identified with us, which is why He came, so that He could be the perfect sacrifice for us. And, and Jesus' prayer wasn't an ultimatum to God. It wasn't, you answer my prayer the way I want it, or I'm not going to trust you anymore. It was, please, this is what I'm asking for. But either way, I still trust you. Even if it has to go this way and not that way, you're still God and I still trust you. And isn't that difficult for us? When it doesn't work out the way we're praying, and it's tragic, and we don't understand, we still can do like Jesus did and say, I don't even understand, but I still trust. You see, Jesus still considered God worthy of obedience and faithfulness. And the Hebrew author said that Jesus learned obedience from the things that He suffered and because of that, He became our high priest because of what He did on the cross. Now in verse 43, old Judas pops up again. Here he is. He's back. But he isn't back by himself. He's brought a crowd with him. And they have swords and clubs. And the chief priests and the scribes and, and others are with them, with him. And this mob has shown up in the garden. And the time has come, and Jesus betrays the Lord with a kiss on the cheek. They arrested Jesus and took Him away. In, in Mark 14, 50, 53 through 65, 
And then begin, the beginning of Mark 15, 1-5, they take Jesus to the house of the high priest. And it's nighttime at this point. The Passover meal was eaten in the evening, and then they spent time there. Then they go to the garden to pray. And now they're at the high priest's house, and they begin the first of what would be six illegal trials of Jesus. Every bit of it was illegal. Every bit of it was, uh, was totally made up and fraudulent. But look at 14, 55 through 56. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put Him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against Him, but their testimony did not agree. They're trying to get some lies going on here, some false testimony that will agree with each other, that they can use as a, a charge against Jesus. Matthew's account in Matthew 26, 59 says it like this, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put Him to death. So we clearly see their motivation. They were motivated to destroy Him, to kill Him, and they didn't care how they did it. They just needed something to go with. And so here's how they got Him. Mark 14, 61-65, but... Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards, they sent him to the guards and they received him with blows. In other words, they beat him up as well. The chief priests found their charge and it was blasphemy because the Old Testament taught, the law of Moses taught that blasphemy, in other words, saying that you are equal with God, you, you are God, you are divine, is a capital offense worthy of death. And they said, we got him. He said he's the Christ, the Son of God. The only problem was he wasn't a man who, like everyone else, who was not divine. He, in fact, was the Son of the Blessed. He was the Christ. He was divine. He was equal with God. And therefore, it wasn't blasphemy because He was simply stating who He was. But they had what they needed. The chief priest charged Him with blasphemy. Now watch what the Jewish leaders did next. They take Him to Pilate. And look in Mark 15, verse 2. And look what Pilate asks Jesus. See if you notice a shift here, a change. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You see the difference? Do you notice what, Paul, uh, what Peter, Pilate asked him? It's not what the high priest asked him. It's not what they talked about in closed Jewish quarters, what they talked about among themselves. Now it's before Pilate, the Roman governor, and he says, are you the king of the Jews? They didn't, he didn't ask him about, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? Because 
He couldn't have cared less about that. But to say that you're the king of the Jews, that is a threat to Rome. You're threatening the, the, the throne and the rule of Caesar himself. And, and, and that is a capital offense deserving of death because you're challenging the authority of Caesar and Rome. So you see how slick they were. They go and take that charge to Pilate. Pilate wouldn't have cared if he had said he was the Christ, the Son of God. But he certainly cared when he said, and Jesus didn't answer, but when he heard the charge uh, that he was the king of the Jews. Now look at 16 through 20 of chapter 15. We won't read all that. But Jesus is before Pilate. Now we learn that it's Pilate's custom uh, during the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread, it's his custom to release one of the criminals that they have who's going to be crucified. And Pilate, he can tell that the Jewish leaders want Jesus dead. I mean, he, he, he sees what they're doing. But he just assumes among the people, the crowd, that's not what they want. And so in verses 8 through 9, uh, see, he asks them, don't you want me to release Jesus? And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered, for them, answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? The crowd was asking Pilate this, not the Jewish leaders. But Pilate was thinking, of course they want me to release him. But look at verse 10. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Did you catch that? Pilate just assumed and could tell the Jewish religious leaders were envious of Jesus... So they were trying to find a way to get him crucified and out of their lives. Pilate knew what they were doing, and he heard the charges against him. Now, remember we saw in Matthew 26, 59, that the council was seeking false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. And John gives us another detail. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, you remember that Sunday of that week, the triumphal entry, and the crowds are worshiping Him and praising Him. And look at John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. They're saying that to each other. Look, the world has gone after Him. In other words, we're losing we're not gaining anything here. They're all going after him. They were envious. They were full of jealousy against him. They couldn't have Jesus taking away their crowd, their attention, their power, their influence. They had to get rid of him in order to regain the power that they believed they had. So the soldiers, uh, Pilate asked the crowd if they want him released. Uh, they surprisingly say they want Barnabas uh, released, Barabbas released. Why? Because verse 11 tells us the chief priest had been stirring up the crowd. They're in there in the crowd, working the crowd. They're getting them all stirred up, and you see how easily swayed they were, just like most crowds, right? And how easily persuaded they were. And now they get all worked up. And now they're calling out, crucify Jesus. Release to us the guilty one, the murderer. Release to us Barabbas. 
And the soldiers had a good time mocking Jesus. They mocked him for the charge of being king of the Jews. So they put a purple robe on him. They, 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 they saluted him. They worshipped him. They gave him a, a crown of thorns. And they would hit him on the head and they would beat him. And then they would pretend to be worshipping him and honoring him as king. But it was all mocking him as the king of the Jews. Now look at verses 21 through 39 of chapter 15. They nailed Jesus to the cross. And according to their practice, they would put a sign above the person's head with the charges that they were guilty of and nail that above their head. And above the head of Jesus, what did they write? Pilate wrote this, the king of the Jews. It was a mockery of him. Everything they did was to mock him, to humiliate him, to belittle him, to to just destroy him. And, And that was also sending a message to believers in him, to Christians, and especially to Jewish Christians. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, but it was perfected by the Romans. The crucifixion brought together four Uh, four characteristics that Romans wanted in their execution. It brought together unrelenting agony. It brought together protracted death, in other words, lasting a long time, uh, being a public spectacle, and utter humiliation. For the Romans, crucifixion was an art form. They had many different things they would do depending on how they felt and what they wanted to do to that individual in, the cru- in a crucifixion. Now, in chapter 15 of Mark, verse 31, the chief priest mocked him saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. What are they saying to who they mocked as the king of the Jews? What are they saying to the one who said he was the Christ, the Messiah? There's, this is the, the, the strongest argument in their minds against Jesus as the Savior, the Christ. Because he claims he saved all these people. He can't even save himself. He can't be the Messiah. He's hanging on a cross. He can't be the Savior. He can't be the Christ. Here's proof. He isn't who y'all think He is. Because we've beaten Him. We've spit on Him. We've nailed Him to a cross. Look at Him. Why do you worship Him? But that's exactly why we believe in Jesus, isn't it? Because we believe He is who He said He is. And He went to the cross and He stayed there at the cross. In the garden, one of the gospel writers, when when Peter pulls out his sword, he cuts off the man's ear and he's ready to fight and kill them all. And what does Jesus say? Put your sword up. Don't you know I can call 10,000 legions of angels right now? And we sing the song, He could have called 10,000 angels. And, And He's already prayed in the garden, all things are possible with you. In other words, He could have called out to God and and God would have come and saved His Son off the cross. I, I don't even know what the implications of that would be. But Jesus chose to hang there and suffer the way He did because of what it meant for us. The Hebrew author said, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame. What joy was there 
and Jesus going to the cross. What joy did he have? The joy of our salvation. That's what joy Jesus had as he endured the cross. You see, the cross shows us how much God loves us. We look at the cross and we see God paid the highest price possible for our salvation, to, to, to pay our ransom money from sin and death. And He did it because He loved us. See, if we had no cross, we would have no Savior, no hope, no forgiveness, and no salvation. Mark 15.33 tells us that when the sixth hour came, which is 12 o'clock noon, and until the, the uh, 3 o'clock, the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. That darkness represented lament and grief and judgment on the people. Lament for what has happened. Lament for sin. Lament for the loss of His Son. What His Son had to endure as well as judgment. That's what was bound up in the cross. And then Jesus in verse 34 cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you thought about that? Why did Jesus say that? Did God really forsake His Son on the cross? And if He did, why would God, a loving God, His Father, why would He forsake His Son in that moment when He needed Him most? Why would He forsake Him? Because up to this time, Jesus had experienced every you know, temptation and challenge of life as, as we do, except he had not experienced the consequence of sin. Think about that. He had not experienced the consequence of sin. What does Isaiah tell us is the consequence of sin? In chapter 59 and verse number 2, he tells us that your iniquities have made you made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Sin separates us from God. Jesus didn't sin, but Jesus hung on the cross and took the full weight, the full responsibility, the full burden of our sin, the sin of the world on Him. And because of that, He became sin for us. Uh, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so a consequence of sin is separation from God. And Jesus felt the sting of sin while He hung on the cross. And He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the first uh, words, the opening lines of Psalm 22. And He cries out this psalm to God as He experienced this pain and abandonment. On the cross, all of our sins were placed on Jesus as if He was the sinner so that they didn't have to be placed on us and us face the true consequences we deserve for our sins. Now look at verses 37-39 through 39 of Mark 15. When Jesus breathed His last, the curtain of the temple was torn from, in two from top to bottom. And, and, and that meant that now through Jesus, people had direct access to God, that, that no longer do you have to worship in the temple like, like you used to, that you don't have to go offer the sacrifices in the, in the most 
Holy of Holies through the priest every year or every so often. You don't have to do that anymore. That Jesus, the Passover Lamb, you remember from last week, the perfect Passover Lamb of God has been sacrificed. There's no more need for any more sacrifice. I did it for you on the cross. That's what that means. The old covenant, the the temple is unnecessary. It's null and void now. And and the Hebrew author calls it weak and useless. And now we access God through the, the sacrifice of our Savior on the cross. Through Him. Through faith in Him. The centurion who was at the cross tells us something. He saw the darkness. Imagine being that centurion at the cross. He sees the darkness everywhere. He's there. He's been there the whole time. He's he's experienced this whole crucifixion. And, And maybe he was just as against Jesus as everyone else. Maybe in his mind he's just doing his job and he couldn't care less who Jesus was. But now it's dark. Now uh, as... as uh, 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 we're told in, in Matthew that there was an earthquake and he feels the earthquake and he, and he hears the screams and he sees what's happening and he hears Jesus cry out to God. And the centurion in verse 39 says, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Those things that happened caused him to believe this has to be the Son of God. Mark opened his gospel in chapter 1 saying he's going to tell us about the Son of God. He's going to reveal the Son of God to us. And now near the end of the book, he has revealed to us and shown us the Son of God who went to the cross for us to save us. And even a Roman centurion cries out, surely this is the Son of God. At Jesus' baptism... Uh, The heavens are torn open, Mark says. And God speaks and says, this is my son. And now at the crucifixion, at his death, the curtain is torn in two. And, And instead of God speaking now, it's a Roman centurion, someone who didn't believe in Jesus, cries out and proclaims, this is the Son of God. And He's been fully revealed to us. You see, although Jesus was innocent, He took the place of another on the cross, didn't He? Barabbas went free, but think about the grace that Barabbas received. Imagine what that was like to be Barabbas. He knew knew what was going to happen to him. And now all of a sudden the crowd is saying, release unto us Barabbas. He can't believe it. It's just incomprehensible. The grace that he received is symbolic of the grace we receive that's far greater by Jesus taking our place on the cross. Because we are Barabbas and should have been hanging there. We deserve eternal separation from God. We deserve, uh, we deserve to be in hell eternally separated from God for our sins. We are Barabbas, and yet He represents the grace that is given to us when Jesus says, you go free because I went to the cross for you, and I took all your sins on me so that you can be saved. Isn't that the good news of the gospel? 
Can you imagine Barabbas being told he's free to go and saying, no, I want to go to the cross. I've been looking forward to it. I've already gotten used to the idea. you, You can't even imagine that. That would never happen, would it? No one would ever say that they would rather be crucified than go free. They all knew what it was. And yet that's what some people do all the time. When they refuse the message of Jesus, when they reject the gospel for their lives, the good news of salvation, and they refuse to be, uh, become Christians, to put their faith in Jesus, to, to have their sins forgiven in the waters of baptism and through repentance, and to be united with Him and raised to walk in newness of life out of the waters of baptism. And they, they reject the message of the gospel. It's like saying, I'd rather be crucified instead of going free. Because Jesus, with His own blood, has purchased our freedom. You see, the cross wasn't a symbol of defeat like the Romans believed it was. And the Jewish leaders who were laughing and mocking and saying, we won. Now they're going to start following us again. The cross was a symbol of victory. Because it's in in Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross that we have victory over sin and death. As Brother Shaver read in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, Paul wrote and summarized this so well, the gospel message, is that Jesus, uh, the Christ, died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then in verse 14 he adds, And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The good news is that Jesus died for our sins. But it, but, it, but it only gets better because He was raised to life, which proved He was, in fact, the Son of God, the Christ. And so here we have salvation in the Son of God by His death on the cross, by His resurrection from the dead, and by believing in this good news and turning our lives over to Christ, being united with Him in baptism, being raised to walk in newness of life. And see, just 50 days from now, when the church is first established on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and and, and Peter and the apostles are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ about what just happened to this crowd of, of Jews that are there to celebrate the Pentecost of thousands of people. And they preach about Jesus. And when they believe that message, they're pricked in their hearts, they're cut to their hearts and say, surely we got to do something. What what do I do with what you just told me? I'm moved, I have to do something. What does Peter say? You want to do something? You want to respond to this message? You believe it? Then here's what you do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, 37 and 38. So I want to ask you this morning, have you responded to the gospel message of Jesus? Have you responded to the gospel message of Jesus? There's only two responses, yes or no, accept or reject. And if you haven't, 
then we want you to know that we're here to help you respond positively to the gospel message, to know what to do, to follow what what people did in the New Testament times, in the Bible, to become Christians. That's all we want to do. We just want to be Christians like they were Christians. We don't want to add anything or take away anything. We just want to follow what we see in Scripture. We want to help you do that. Maybe you need to study for a while. Maybe you need prayers. Maybe you're ready this morning. Maybe you have responded to the gospel message of Jesus and you've become a Christian, but you haven't been living like that. That, that, that the, the crucifixion and the resurrection haven't been staying fresh on your heart and your mind. And you need to get yourself centered back on Jesus. Your life, your daily life centered back on Him. We want to pray for you in that regard as well. If we can help you this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing. We thank you again for listening today. If we can answer any questions for you or serve you in some way, please reach out to us. You can find our contact information and more on our website at bullardchurchofchrist.com. If this lesson has helped you, please rate our podcast and share it so more people can hear the Word of God. And please, come visit as soon as you can. We meet on Sundays for class at 9 a.m., worship at 10 a.m., evening worship at 5, and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. God bless you.